Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Bama Expats. I'm Mark Torrance with Matt Dover in New York, and uh, we said that we were going to be off for a couple weeks unless uh, any big news broke around Alabama's football or basketball programs, and that has indeed happened. Um, since we last spoke to you all, um, Avery Johnson is no longer the coach of Alabama, and in, I believe it was less than a week, uh, a little less than a week, Alabama has found a new basketball coach, Nate Oates uh, of Buffalo, who uh, really revived that program, uh, sent them to, a tur- to the tournament a few times, got some big wins in the tournament. Uh, he is now uh, the man at the helm of the Alabama basketball program, had his press conference just a couple hours before we are recording this episode on Thursday evening, so we are here to uh, talk about the move, uh, talk about uh, Coach Oates, and kind of just quickly go over the challenges that he has to face uh, going forward. So yeah, here today we're going to recap the the coaching search, kind of talk about what went down and how that led to uh, uh, Coach Oates coming to Tuscaloosa, and then we're going to do a deep dive on his program and kind of talk talk you all through kind of what his Buffalo teams looked like, what their tendencies were, uh, how he managed his roster, and, you know, what what we could expect that to mean for his upcoming tenure at Alabama. And then finally, we're going to look at some uh, developments that's already that are already underway regarding Alabama's roster for next season and uh, how Oates could uh, manage that as well. So, Matt, you ready? This has been it's been kind of a whirlwind week for us. It has. It's been been a stressful, uh, not even just a few days. It's been a stressful few weeks, few months <laughs> for Alabama basketball fans. But uh, you know, hopefully, uh, in a good place now. For well, it's debatable for in a good place for next season. We'll talk about that. That's a lot to do with the roster management. But I think Alabama fans are going to be happy with this hire in the long term. All right, well, let's uh, jump right in and kind of uh, recap what's happened since we last spoke. Um, that was following Alabama's loss to Kentucky, which knocked it out of the SEC tournament and then ultimately uh, out of the NCAA tournament selection. Um, we actually didn't talk before the NIT, and we didn't really have any plans to recap or uh, do any deep dives on the NIT, and it turns out we made the correct that decision. Was, that was for the best. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Alabama went down to Norfolk State in a pretty uninspiring uh, fashion. And, um, you know, that was definitely when the, the rumblings became uh, screams, I think, from the fan base who was, who was ready for a change, uh, especially after some quotes from the Norfolk State players about the perceived effort from the team. And um, ultimately, uh, the two parties... Uh, parted ways and uh, uh, they came to uh, they negotiated a buyout and I don't believe details of that buyout have been made public but it sounds like we didn't end up paying the full buyout amount regardless uh, Avery Johnson was no longer Alabama's head coach Um, and Matt you know we tweeted out a list of candidates who we thought um, would be a good hire for Alabama Um, Oates was certainly on that list I think uh, what stood out to me in this process that lasted, I think, a little over six days um, was just the 
the not not even secrecy but it just kind of came out of nowhere you know you were hearing some reports about obviously steve prome was the top of everybody's list um just given his connections to alabama and how his teams have played he was on the list four years ago before we hired avery or not even on a list oh, just kind of the on, top of the list yeah he, he was, he, he, was he was mentioned as a candidate yeah. and he was and he was mentioned even more this time around given that he's now been winning at uh in like a power five conference mm-hmm. um and then you know there was a brief moment where people were focused on uh rick patino and then greg byrne held a held a press conference kind of kicking off the search and and Poured in, some cold water on that yeah and in, in not so many words was said that that they weren't going to bring in a guy with ncaa troubles and then you know the search seemed to kind of be moving on to names like dad mata um fred hoiberg is kind of still put, uh, potentially out there and then you know samson at houston but then out of nowhere uh greg byrne on twitter drops that uh he had uh he had got uh, Nate Oates to Tuscaloosa and you know it was a name that we thought Alabama was eventually going to get to but it just kind of came out of nowhere and uh and yeah now we have a coach that that was kind of my takeaway was just how this name and this hire just suddenly appeared there was no smoke there was no kind of inclination that this was coming yeah, you know they they call Greg Byrne the ninja because That's, he's yeah. been super secretive in some previous uh hiring processes um, but boy, was he this time. I mean, it, it kind of back all the way up, like Mark said. We, you know, we put out a list on Twitter. This was a list of names who we, – we kind of ruled out guys who we thought were probably unrealistic. You know, your Billy Donovans, your Mark Fuse. Um, you know, even, even coaches who are currently at schools that are maybe Alabama's level or even a, a hair lower in terms of – you know, name brand money. Let's say I'm thinking like Chris Beard at Texas Tech, for example, would, would fit that category very well. Um, guys, you'd certainly love to have, but like maybe a little bit of a reach just because getting them to leave another powers conference school um, was a little bit of a stretch. It didn't include those names. Also removed. Didn't consider people with NCAA baggage like Rick Pitino, also Kelvin Sampson, Sean Miller, uh, put in that category as well. Um, and like looking at the names that are left, uh, what were our top picks? And put those out in order, uh, rough, not exactly in order, but like roughly in order. Um, and Nate Oates was the third name on that list. Um, uh, we had Fred Hoiberg um, at the top of the list, I believe. Um, but it turns out he wants to stay close to his, uh, his family's home in Iowa. So I think he's likely to take the Nebraska job. I don't think that's official yet, but it seems to be the unofficial strong word I think last we heard um bad Mata there's still a lot of questions about whether or not he's healthy enough to coach so you know it's unclear if he was really ever an option or not uh, but that was a name we said if he was healthy and he was available that that would be you know a big time hire but Nate Oates was the next name on the list we had him actually ahead of Steve Prome Steve Prome would have been a great hire. I would have been satisfied with that. But to, to get to Nate Oates, I, I'm, I'm very satisfied, just speaking for me personally. Um, and not least, not the least of which, because uh, he is a true stats nerd. Right. <laughs> so you know he's, he's a man right after my own heart. Um, you know, literally was a stats teacher. That was his job before, <laughs> uh, or as he was starting his, his college, or not college, his basketball coaching career period. 
Um, so, uh, and, you know, just having listened to him now on a couple of different podcasts, I think we've shared some of these on Twitter, but if you haven't had a chance, there's a couple of great podcasts out there where he talks about his philosophy, how he thinks about shot selection. And I mean, it's just right out of the analytics Bible for, for basketball coaching yeah. and basketball analytics, um, in terms of how he thinks about shot selection and optimization and efficiencies. I mean, just, oh man, it's going to be, uh, an, an analytics nerd's dream for a coach because this is a guy that that uh, uh, lives and breathes this stuff. But um, that wasn't just the only reason to be excited about him. His resume, phenomenal. I mean, when it comes to coaches who are at mid-major schools per- currently, to me, he was the clear number one. And that's why on the list we put out there, we had him third. Only behind a guy that's literally – two guys that have literally coached power conference teams already – you know, to Sweet 16s and conference, multiple conference championships uh, in, in Hoiberg and Mata, um, you know, who, who we thought might have been feasible to get. Um, but he was the very next name on that list because I think ahead of – he stood out to me just looking at his resume and accomplishments. Like, forget the stuff about how he likes analytics. Like, just what, what has he done, period, um, at a school like Buffalo, which is a really tough place uh, – you know, to, uh, to recruit to, um, and, you know, no name brand and, you know, all the, all that stuff might have in a Mac conference, kind of an obscure school in the Mac conference, uh, to, to do what he's done to have a legitimate top 25 team this year. Um, in, in every, in every respect, the human polls, the Ken, Ken Palm, you know, the NCAA seating, all those things, everyone agreed they were a top 25 team this year. Um, to put that kind of team together at a place like Buffalo, uh, speaks volumes. He's a young guy, um, has done it the right way. We're going to, in a second, talk about sort of how he put together that team in Buffalo, both both in terms of personnel and in terms of style. Um, but I have a lot of confidence that these are things that are going to translate. Um, and again, we're going to talk about that more in a second. And, and contrast that with some other mid-major coaches who have similar seeming resumes, but the, like, the way that they've assembled their roster and, and, and accomplished their, uh, their results maybe might might not be might not translate as well to the SEC. Um, one last note is on the process uh, about how it came out of nowhere. Uh, I, I gotta say one more thing about that. That was truly remarkable. You know, there were rumors floating around. Obviously, Prom was a big name, but then you know when he signed his extension with Iowa State, that seemingly took him out of the running. The only other name that had been rumored by quote unquote you know sources close to the program uh, was Thad Mata. And you know, I I personally had heard that from several people who have connections, you know, at the university or supposedly have connections. And I was hearing it from a bunch of different people. Maybe it was the same source <laughs> of the rumor who was just spreading around everywhere. Maybe it was an intentional distraction orchestrated by Greg Byrne or someone close to Greg Byrne. That's possible. Uh, I don't know there was necessarily so much smoke around Thad Mata himself it, or, or just that he was the only name that had, had ever been associated with the search in any way, shape, or form. And so as it went on, people just kept assuming that he must be the, the top candidate just because he was the only name that had emerged. Um, whatever it was, uh, I mean, right up until literally the moment Greg Byrne just sent a tweet saying he had hired Nate Oates. I mean, no one had this. They're not any Even of like the, a half hour, hour before no. the, the tweet came out. And it, I think he was, was literally all... in Buffalo. Yeah, and I mean, the, the UA, UA on the way up to yeah, Buffalo. and UA's blocked the tracking on their plane, so there was yeah. no like indication yeah. where they were. But even right bef- like up to like minutes before he sent the tweet, all the people you're texting and talking yeah. to, you know, again, not no, not sure exactly how credible they are, but it's a lot of Thad Mata hype that day, and then they come in with uh, yeah. 
with Nate Oates. It, it was pretty shocking. You know, when when Greg when Byrne had his his one and only press conference before the hire, he had said, um, you know, if you don't hear it from me, it's not true. And if anybody else out there is is leaking things, that tells me they don't want the job. And I kind of rolled my eyes because you kind of hear that a lot from ads and coaches yeah, and, and just generally public figures about press coverage. But I mean. Greg Byrne stuck to that word, and, and it was it was it was amazing. So, all right, so we've got uh, Nate Oates. He's in Tuscaloosa. He is the coach of Alabama, and uh, we want to dive in and kind of look at his style of play and talk about what Alabama fans can expect. I think the thing that's uh, that's stuck out to me so far, he in, in just kind of doing some reading up on him. We've been listening to some of the same podcasts, interviews with him. Uh, got a chance to look over some quotes from the introductory press conference today. He seems like, to me, a little more of an old-school coach with a modern thinking and a modern like strategy for the game. So you read about him giving out a hard hat to his player after every game who dives for the most loose balls and things like that. And his practices seem to be more up-tempo and more kind of physically taxing. Even his high school practices, one thing you heard from a lot of people was, the, the practices at his high school, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, in Detroit were run almost like a college practice. Very intense, a lot of drills. Um, his teams play that way too. It's very up-tempo. It's a physically demanding style. But he's got a very forward-thinking approach to the game. Like You hear him talk a lot about expected value of a, of a, of a three-pointer versus a long two. He was bragging about how his teams were seventh in the country in least amount of long twos taken which is like the worst shot analytically in basketball and talking about how if you're going to step over the line and take a two it better be a 60 percent chance it's going in versus a 40 percent chance and even then the defense has enough time to close in so you, a lot of things like that that don't really that aren't really in quote-unquote mainstream discourse from like people in the coaching world when you hear them speak publicly about this stuff so I think that's what that, that's kind of been my takeaway. And Matt, you can certainly dive deeper into the numbers here, but he seems like a really demanding coach. Expects a lot out of his players. Runs tough practices, but has that analytical mindset and is always is thinking a lot about efficiency and uh, just the the way to maximize his players. Yeah, that's right. We've already spent a few minutes talking about this earlier, but uh, I think he's going to be a. For, for stats nerds like Mark and I, this is going to be a dream come true. He's just a guy that when he's making coach strategic decisions, now I don't want to confuse that with the his sort of style of motivating players, which is a little bit different. And like Mark said, actually, to pause on that for a second, I think you're exactly right. I think Alabama fans, even the non-stats nerds, Alabama, just the old school, you know, Alabama fans who still you know remember fondly, you know, Bear Bryant or who love who just get you know get all hot and bothered when they see Nick Saban like <laughs> chewing a guy out you know on the football field like those those fans are gonna love the way that Nate Oates it, like Mike Mark said is very old school in terms of motivating players um, you know, demands hustle like all these things you're hearing about him um, you've already seen some great quotes about that that have that leaked out right after he was hired and 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 yeah you're gonna love that um, uh, especially. It, unfortunately kind of contrasts a little bit with um let's say at least the way that Alabama's uh team was looked at times uh under under Avery Johnson uh whoever's fault that was so um I think that's going to be great in and of itself uh but then 
moving from the like motivating uh, players to the like strategic elements of the game like and again mark said this he's very new school he's old school and it's like comes to motivating he's very new school when it comes to strategy and and again i'll I'll plug it one more time we'll we'll send out some more links about about this on twitter over the next few days but there's a couple of great podcasts where he you can start just hearing how his mind works about how he decides which shots to emphasize like which kind of tempo to emphasize how to just how to make sure his teams analytically are getting uh the most points per possession they can on offense and the fewest points per possession they can give up on defense i mean that's what everybody's trying to do but like he really thinks about it that way and mathematically and it leads to a lot of great opportunities and a way to squeeze the most you can out of the talent you have. Um, and, and, you know, look no further than the success he's had at Buffalo. Um, speaking of that success, let's, let's talk about the success he's had in, in Buffalo in terms of uh, just results. And then we'll talk about the style uh, that his teams have played at Buffalo. What that analytics approach he's taken, like what is, how is that translated into, into the way Buffalo has performed? So, so I guess if we yeah. were like like if we were doing almost an opponent preview of Buffalo, how would right. you characterize them, you know, especially this year and also last year uh, and just kind of throughout his tenure? Yeah, so we're going to go in more detail about this in a second. But uh, so Nate Oates was at Buffalo as a head coach of Buffalo for four years. He was an assistant coach before that. So when he took over the program, it wasn't exactly a totally new program, but – and again, we're going to detail this in a second, so I don't go too much down the rabbit hole. But basically, when the previous coach, uh, Hurley, left, um, he was left personnel-wise with very little. Only four players from that team were back, uh, and it wasn't the, the four best players. So it took a while to, to build up to where uh, where they got to this year. Um, in, in year one, uh, NATO's team at Buffalo was sort of middle of the pack in the MAC conference. Uh, they were 138th in Ken Palm, three, 353 teams. And this is a mid-major. So, you know, unlike the SEC where, you know, the worst teams are usually in the, you know, just below 100th, let's say, in Ken Palm. You know, we're talking about the MAC conference. Um, the worst teams in the MAC conference are around like 300th or 250th or something like that at least. So they were 138th. Uh, with, with the, in his first year rebuilding, uh, but they had, they had a winning record in the MAC. They were ten and eight, uh, but significantly, uh, despite finishing kind of middle of the pack in the league his first year, they ended up winning the MAC conference tournament. So they got an automatic bid uh, to March Madness. Uh, they were fourteen seeds. They were one of the you know lower teams getting as an automatic seed, uh, automatic bid. And, and as a hundred thirty eighth Ken Palm team, they weren't quite at the level yet to, unless there had just been a, a fluky game, they weren't going to. They weren't at the level where they could really get there and win games. Uh, and they didn't. They went out in the first round, although they kept it pretty close uh, against what I believe was West Virginia, I want to remember. It was like a three seed they played that year uh, and kept it a single-digit game. So it was, it was a respectable performance. Year two comes back, kind of still rebuilding. You know, hadn't had a chance to get his guys in there yet. Uh, they improved incrementally. They went up from 138th to 122nd in Ken Palm. Uh, this, that year, they were one game better in the MAC. They went 11-7. and seven. So they kind of, they're actually in a, believe it or not, a, like a four-way tie for second place in the league regular season that year, with 11-7 and seven record. So, you know, again, one of the better teams in the MAC in year two, uh, but nothing that stood out nationally. And that, and that year, they did not win the MAC, uh, MAC tournament. I think they were knocked out uh, in the semifinals or quarterfinals of the, of the MAC tournament. But then year three came around. Uh, you know, by this time, he had gotten his players in there. 
they had a, a fantastic season for a MAC team, certainly. It was 67th in Ken Palm. I mean, that's up to the level of, if you know, it's Alabama almost, this year. around where Alabama Alabama was, ended yeah. up this year, 65th, I believe, in Ken Palm. So, and again, this is at Buffalo. Went 15-3 and three in the MAC. Uh, so they were, they were the best team in the MAC that year in the regular season. Ended up going to the MAC tournament, won the MAC tournament, uh, got a bid to the NCAA tournament. Probably wouldn't have quite gotten in without winning the MAC tournament, but they, they were, you know, near the bubble otherwise. But they got in, it was the automatic bid. They were 12 seed. Uh, Went to the tournament and absolutely, this was this was last season. Uh, just blew the doors off of an Arizona team that had a ton of talent. I mean, DeAndre yeah. Ayton was uh, you know top a top NBA pick. Alabama um, played Arizona. Alabama that played year. Arizona last year. That's right. So they got a big win in the NCAA tournament first round. I mean, again, huge, probably the biggest win in Buffalo basketball history or certainly modern history. Um, huge win. Came back this season, year four, and this is where I mean they were really firing on all cylinders. We already mentioned this top 25 team and no matter how you their resume was top 25 according to the selection committee they got a six seed in the tournament um their top they were 21st best team according to ken palm they were in the top 25 pretty much all season long in the human polls got a big win over syracuse early in the season um ended up just dominating the mac conference this year went went to 16 and 2 uh their only losses were uh ro- on the road by two points and then four points in a different game uh, ended up running through the, the MAC Conference Tournament, won the championship there, went to the NCAA Tournament. They were favored over Arizona State in the first in the round of 64. Ended up winning that game easily by, uh, I believe it was 16, 17 points, something like that. Yeah, uh, blew the doors off of another team uh, another, in the first another round. Another power conference team. Uh, they ran into, you know, they did they did lose in the in round of 32 to Texas Tech, but that's a top 10 Ken Palm team. So a little bit of a tough draw, really. Uh, and Texas Tech, uh, we, they're be playing i believe tonight thursday night after we record the show so they may be an elite eight team by the time you hear this uh with the chance to be in the final four uh so uh, again i mean you're talking about building up a program slow steady it was slow and steady which again when we start talking about roster management and, and some of the challenges alabama has that, that may unfortunately be what alabama is looking at depending maybe not but maybe uh but either way you know they were steadily increasing to the point where this year, I mean, they were legitimately better than almost every power conference team in the country. They would have been, uh, you know, at, at 21st in Ken Palm, I believe, in the SEC. They would have been like the fourth or fifth best team in the, in the entire SEC. So um, fantastic team. The results, absolutely incredible. Uh, and again, kind of kind of built this, not from scratch. He, you know, Bobby Hurley, uh, the coach he worked under uh, at Buffalo, did sort of make a splash there, got them in the tournament one year, but again, didn't leave much of anything personnel-wise. Never kind top of, 25. Had to, never, yeah, either. never got to this level, but kind of had to rebuild uh, personnel-wise from from the ground up. So great uh, great results. Can't argue with the results. Um, let's talk about the style of play. So I'm going to look at, at Buffalo's team this year, which I think, you know, given that this was their successful year, it kind of epitomizes um, what he wants to do. Uh, and... Uh, Frankly, the, the the season before last season, they were pretty similar. So we're, I'm going to cite their numbers and rankings this season. Um, but for the most part, well, of course, were, the exact rankings were different last year, but the their strengths were the same strengths. Um, so the first thing that's that's gonna uh, that's gonna jump out in terms of their style is definitely their offensive tempo. They were third in the nation this season uh, in terms of having the fastest offensive possessions so uh 
what you're looking at is uh, a situation where, um, you know, this was a team that uh, got off shots very quick, uh, much quicker than most teams uh, are going to get them off. Uh, 14 seconds was the average amount of time for their offensive possessions, which is, again, just incredibly low. So, again, if you listen to some of his him talking about his philosophy, you're going to hear this a lot where – in his mind, not in his mind, I mean, he's, he's looking at data to, to back this up, right? That, that the shots you can get, and sometimes this is against the, some of the conventional wisdom uh, that, that some, some old school people have, that oftentimes the best shots you can get analytically are early in the shot clock. Yeah, that, that's one thing that stuck out to me in listening to some of his interviews and, and him talking about his philosophy was, yeah, he was saying, you know, in, in transition, you want to get, especially in transition, you want to get if you have an open look, take it because if you wait, that gives the defense more time to close in. There's a greater chance that you're going to be playing a half court offense and that you're not you're just analytically not as likely to get a better shot. And you know that kind of philosophy, like take the shot if you have it. One one thing he said that really stuck out yeah. was one thing I tell my players is uh, taking an open shot is a very selfless act for your team because if you pass up an open shot it's more likely that your team, somebody on your team, maybe you also, is going to take a lower percentage shot right. after that. Be so, forced into a bad situation. And you can see that that philosophy bears itself out in the in the data. Yeah, it's basically, the logic is, it's really pretty simple. You don't even necessarily, there are numbers that back this up, but you don't even need to. It's just essentially, if you can take a semi-contested shot early in the shot clock, let's say, a, you know, not a, obviously the conventionalism is, if you're in transition, you have a wide open or pretty pretty obviously advantageous situation like a two on one a three on one like yes you take it but otherwise if it's not obviously a, a good easy an easy shot then back it out wait slow it down set it up set up your offense which you know and once the offenses get set up usually um obviously sometimes you can get great shots out of your half court offense but usually you're going to end up taking a shot late in the shot clock that's only more moderately efficient whereas you know his philosophy is Look, you you might be in a one-on-one situation or two-on-two situation in transition, but in those situations, you're probably able to get at least a above-average shot off in that situation. So why not go ahead and take that? Why why just wait and and risk, you know, getting into half-court offense? Because one was getting the longer you hold the ball without shooting, the more likely you are to turn the ball over, which is a good time for us to point out here that uh, Buffalo. Uh, this year was in the top 25 teams in the country at avoiding turnovers on offense. And that's despite <laughs> Which be news to Alabama fans yeah, years this year. And you think about it, like you think high tempo, they're press, they're pushing the ball off the court really quick. You're thinking, well, that's more prone to turn the ball over. And sometimes it is, but that wasn't the case here. <laughs> despite the fact that being the third fastest team in the country in terms of their offense, they were in the top 25 out of 353 teams at avoiding turnovers. So, uh, and that was a big thing Alabama struggled with this year, right? It's turnovers. And, and, you know, and it's not necessarily that turnovers aren't caused by having bad ball. Hand- I mean, obviously that can hurt you. Certainly if you have a lot of bad ball handlers or, uh, or whatever, but oftentimes it's just a result of not being able to get good looks early in the shot clock. And then you're having to hold on to the ball longer. You're trying to force the issue, um, make more passes. It's just the more passes and more dribbles you take, the more likely something is to happen. The defense is going to get a steal, or you're going to dribble it off your own foot, or make a mistake of something, um, and, and and they avoid that. So that that's just that alone, like being being that quick, uh, avoiding turnovers alone is a big factor. 
Um, so you're going to see a lot of, of pushing the ball in transition and really trying to get shots up early, which might seem, again, counterintuitive, but actually analytically is more efficient than waiting uh, and setting letting the defense set up. So that's something you're going to see a lot. He really, really emphasizes that, and it shows up very, very clearly in the data, just looking at how, the way Buffalo performed uh, this season and in other recent seasons. Uh, the other big factor that you're going to see come out here, and this is uh, – I. I I'm going to cringe saying this, but be given how much we talked about, uh, previewed this team twice during the season, uh, those those of you who are loyal listeners know what we're talking about when we say this. They're very Auburn-like in the way that they treat three-point shots. Um, you know, we talked about Auburn uh, this season, how they built their whole program around making sure they've got at least four, usually five guys on the court at all times who are capable of shooting three-pointers. They know how valuable three-point shots are. They, they just look for, in transition, especially in transition, but also in half court, just look for ways to get as many three-point shots up as they can. Um, this Buffalo team isn't quite as prolific as Auburn when it comes to, to taking and making three-pointers. At the same time, they don't have, they didn't have anybody as talented, especially in terms of three-point shooting, as Jared Harper and Bryce Brown are for Auburn. Um, they do have a lot of good, three, capable three-point shooters, but no, nobody at that level from an individual talent standpoint. So they, their, their three-point percentage makes were actually just a hair below the national average. The national average is 34.4. They were 33.6 in terms of just the percentage of threes they made. So kind of basically right at average, but just a hair below average, which you look at that and say, okay, so they weren't a great three-point shooting team. Well, that's not really what that says because – Buffalo was in the top 15% of all teams in college basketball in terms of the number of three-point attempts that they generated. So they were putting up a huge volume of three-point shots. Again, not quite at the level of like Auburn and Villanova, but like one small step below that. They were like the tier below that in terms of the number of three-pointers, how often they generated three-point shots. Um, and, and that overall, in terms of just number of three-pointers that they made when you factor in the percentage uh, you know, and uh, uh, and the volume that they had was 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 well above average. They also made sure, and again, we're going to talk about the personnel in a second in a little more detail. But just overall, we can say that uh, Nate Oates likes to. In fact, he outright said this on one of the one of the podcasts that we've caught up on. That you know, there's absolutely no way he's ever putting a lineup out in the court that doesn't have at least three uh, guys that are capable of three point shooters, and that. He's going to do everything he can to make sure there's five guys out there that can shoot three-pointers, um, or at the very least four. And that shows up in the Buffalo team this year. Buffalo basically had no players, really, uh, that were not capable three-point shooters. There was like their the ninth guy and their eighth or ninth guy in their rotation um, you know, was a poor three-point shooter, I would say. But everybody else, and this includes their five guy, their four guy, all the way through was at least capable of, of stepping out and hitting three pointers. Um, you know, I, looking at just up and down their roster, you know, of all their, all their starters, you know, made at least, uh, I believe 33 point shots over the course of the season. So again, and that includes their four and five guys. They've got guys that's six, eight, six, seven, you know, that are out there shooting threes. Again, very similar to Auburn. Auburn is the same way now with Okiki and um, Macklemore. You know they, they're basically putting four and five guys on the court who can who are capable of shooting threes, and that's that's how Buffalo was built. So yeah, that's it. They're, they're essentially their style of play is all about pushing the ball in transition, 
looking for transition threes, a lot of kickouts, loves to get some kickout three pointers. Um, but it's really that it's 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 pressing advantages in the offensive transition. Uh, looking to make quick passes, looking to get early shots up. I think it's going to be an exciting style of play for Alabama fans. You know, Al- every coach, or certainly the last two coaches for Alabama, have promised high speed. You know, and it <laughs> turns out just a combination of uh, their own philosophy and or just the types of players that they've recruited that you know Alabama ends up being more defense focused, like slowed the ball down more than sped it up. But this, you really are going to see that here. Um, if the personnel Alabama puts on the court the next couple of years allows for it, which is it's going to be much, much faster, a lot more points scored on the offensive end. Uh, and something I think Alabama fans are going to are going to notice the difference stylistically right away. And especially once he's able to recruit the type of players uh, that he needs to to do that. So let's talk about that kind of personnel management. I don't we don't need to like talk necessarily about all the specific players on Buffalo, but why don't you kind of take us through how he built the roster that he did especially you know in year four that's kind of you got all your own guys in the program now and kind of how he got to the point where he had a roster that was a top 25 team across the board yeah so I mentioned before that you know even though the coach that came before him was successful in fact that the 2014-2015 season which was the last year before he took over at Buffalo. Buffalo had a very successful season. They were so successful that uh, Hurley got hired away to go coach at uh, uh, at Arizona State, I believe, yeah. actually. so like He was playing his own boss. He actually played his own boss and beat his, beat his own boss pretty soundly. <clears throat> um, so uh, they were, they were you know, ranked around, I think, 60th or so in Ken Palm. Very, very good. Only one of Buffalo's best seasons at that time ever. Um, so you think, well, okay, well, he inherited, you know, he hit the ground running because they inherited a great program that, that succeeded to the point where his boss got hired away through yeah. the conference program. Yes, but uh, in that offseason, after that after that 2014-2015 uh, team, uh, this happens oftentimes with coaching changes, and we're going to talk about this in a second with Alabama. Guess what? The top two players were underclassmen and did not come back. Uh, they lost one of them to transfer. The other player actually got kicked off the team in the offseason. Um, so the top two players who were set to come back are the top two players, period, comma, you know, or who, who, who would have come back yeah. else, uh, transferred, and one got kicked out uh, of school, I believe. Um, they did get their third and fourth best players back, but then their fifth and sixth, number five and number six players in the rotation uh, were seniors and graduated. So they lost four of their top six players, and they only had an eight-player rotation. So basically, they got the, they got, they got the third and fourth best player back, and then they got the last two guys in their rotation back. And that was it. So literally just four players returned from that team and it wasn't their best players. Um, so really starting from scratch uh, there, didn't have much of anything, had a big class come in and we're going to talk about this in a second, but he brought in a six man class that year. Uh, since then it's for his first class uh, in 2015. Then his 2016 class had four players. His 2017 pl- class had four players plus a transfer uh, in his 2018 class, just before this past season, had three players. So, who are these players he's bringing in, um, and where is he getting them? Like, how is he how's he getting them? Is he doing this by transfers? Doing it with high school players? What's he doing? Um, he does not, at least in terms of his four years at Buffalo, is not a guy that did it with transfers. Um, throughout his four classes at Buffalo, uh, where he brought in, uh, he brought in a grand total of 18 players over those four years. Only one of those 18 players was a transfer from another uh, D1 college. And that one has a big asterisk by it because 
Uh, it was a graduate transfer, Wes Clark, out of the SEC, came from Missouri, where he was actually in the rotation at Missouri. Uh, coming out of Missouri, the big, the big asterisk here is that uh, Wes Clark was Nate Oates' high school player. Nate Oates was his high school coach, so he basically had a chance to go play for his high school coach, right. which is a weird thing for a college player you know, to be able to do. Uh, and he took it, and he came and played one season as a grad transfer uh, uh, at Buffalo. But that's the only exception here. So that and that, that that's a guy that probably literally came to him, or maybe not. Who knows? Maybe he called. Maybe went the other way. But either way, it's kind of a unique situation. That's at this point, I guess mathematically couldn't be repeated because Nate Oates has been out of high school too long for any of his high school players to still be in college. So, anyways, you get the idea. He hasn't been a guy that's done this by pulling in transfers. Um, what he had are tradi- you know, the D1 transfers. However, what he has done a lot of, of the remaining 17 players that he's recruited into his program over these, over these four recruiting classes he put together, six of them were a JUCO player. So over, over a third of the guys that he recruited to Buffalo were JUCO guys. Um, and he really had a bunch of success pulling in JUCO guys. Of the JUCO guys, he's had really two star players, I would say, uh, who are on the team this season. Uh, who've both been with the program for multiple years. Those are the only guys I would classify as stars. Then he's had a bunch of other guys that are major contributors, a couple of minor contributors, and then you know a couple of, of busts here and there, as any, any coach is going to have. Uh, but of his, of his six JUCO guys, one of those became one of the two star players on the team this year, really over the last couple of years. Uh, three of those six were major contributors. So of the, of the six, four of them were major contributors, one of whom was a star. Uh, a fifth guy was has been a minor contributor the last couple of years for Buffalo, uh, and then well, the sixth JUCO guy uh, has he was his first year in the program this year, and um, he was really just uh, mostly a bench player. But he uh, he's eligible to come back next season, so who knows? He could be he could end up being a pretty good player. But overall, with the, what I'm saying there is is you know he's got a really good hit rate when he goes to the JUCO ranks. So those six guys again, four major contributors. The fifth guy's a minor contributor. And the sixth guy, I don't even know if you call him a bust. He just, his first year this year, he didn't really, he's kind of the first guy that wasn't quite cracking the rotation. But he'll come back next year, presumably, and, and you know, could have a good chance to play. So great hit rate in his Juco players. And again, he really likes to go to the Juco route. I don't know if that's going to continue at Alabama. You know, you're obviously at a, at a school like Buffalo, you're kind of more restricted at the, at the level of players you can recruit out of high school. So, you know, maybe, maybe that was just a necessity of being at Buffalo, or maybe it's a place that, that, you know, he'll go back. I think my best guess is it'll be somewhere in the middle, right? He's already proven that he's uh, willing to go to that well. I think he's probably going to go back to it at Alabama, but I don't think he'll, just because he won't need to, probably won't rely on that pipeline quite as much. But I do expect to see Alabama pull in, you know, a Juco guy or, uh, every every so often with, with Nate Oates there, and, and especially early on, that, that could be helpful. Finally, uh, the 11 other guys, the bulk of these guys are just high school recruits. You know, he's doing it the traditional way. Yeah, yeah six JUCOs, did bring in the one transfer for one year. Um, but otherwise, the other 11 players he's pulled in that he's built this program around were all high school players. Uh, of those 11, one became a star, one of the two stars on this team. He was a, four, a great four-year player uh, for this team, uh, one of the best, best all-around players in the MAC. Uh, recruited out of high school. Five more were major contributors. So out of the 11, that's six that were major contributors, one of whom was a star. So the majority of his guys became, you know, guys that were major contributors to the program. Uh, another one that's been a minor contributor. Um, three of them, I think you could classify as busts. They, uh, you know, either haven't cracked the lineup yet or transferred out before really cracking the lineup. 
and then one guy was actually kicked out of school. One of the 11 was kicked out of school after one year uh, due to an arrest. Um, so, yeah, re- really a pretty good hit rate. Uh, one other thing about his personnel management before we move on to how it, you know, how this translates to Alabama um, is that uh, only one time has a player of his four years at Buffalo as a player transferred out of the program who was in the rotation heavily. So basically, the only guys who have transferred out, uh, except for one player, were guys who weren't in the rotation, right? They were guys that maybe had been encouraged to leave or, like, you know, players that the, that the program wasn't relying on. Uh, and that one player who left, left after Oates' first season, and he was not a player that Oates himself had recruited. He was inherited from the previous the previous coaching staff. So I think it's a good sign that he's able to retain players. And these days in college basketball, as this is a good transition to talking about Alabama, uh, that might be just as an important skill as recruiting good players in the first place. So, um, yeah, I, I think overall, just thinking about the way he's handled his roster, it's encouraging. Um, one, the, the only other mid-major coach that, to me, had the resume that matched Nate Oates and a, a name I thought about a lot was Eric Musselman, the coach at Nevada. Um, the thing that got me about, about Musselman is that his entire program was built around D1 transfers. That was it. He'd recruited right. like one or two high school players in the years he's been at Nevada. But I mean, this year, I think it was their top seven, six or seven players were all D- transfers from other D1 schools, which is fine. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. But then you, you makes you wonder, even though he's got a stellar record at Nevada that really is competitive. It, it, I, I'd say it's on the level of Nate Oates at Buffalo. But you just wonder, like, how does that translate? Like, is that, is that, uh, you know, is that the path that you want to build your program around in the SEC? Maybe it is. I, I but you know, I I feel a little more comfortable with a guy that's done it more the traditional route uh, by by you know recruiting the guys out of high school in JUCO versus somebody that's that's doing it by transferring, bringing in transfers from other schools. So I, I think that's an important point too as we maybe think about Alabama's situation. Yeah. So we're we're gonna wrap this episode up just kind of applying that what you just talked about in terms of roster philosophy and roster management and uh, look at what that means for Alabama, um, you know, not just in the long term, but I think especially important in the near term, um, you know, what this means for Alabama's roster uh, right away. And anybody who's been following the news uh, knows this. I think, you know, we talked about the three kind of rising redshirt seniors on, on Alabama's roster who could transfer and be eligible immediately. Uh, two of those, Dazon Ingram and Daniel Giddens, have already kind of announced their intentions of doing so. I believe Dazon has on has been posting on Instagram about it. Giddens, there's just been reports that he's in the, the transfer portal. Haven't heard anything definitive about Tevin Mack so far, but th- that was kind of expected. But kind of lower down the roster for guys who would definitely have to sit out the two names uh, top of mind and the two names that have been reported to be in the transfer portal are John Petty and Kyra Lewis, arguably Alabama's two best players uh, coming back this year and just guys that you really don't want to lose. Uh, I'll start with Petty, who uh, Joe Goodman of, of CBS uh, said that he had spoken to Petty and initially said that Petty was leaving no matter what, but then clarified that uh, Petty said he would he would definitely consider coming back to Alabama and uh, Lewis, uh, he has all. He was uh, uh, Coach Oates at his press conference today. Actually, mentioned uh, Lewis specifically as a guy who he's already talked to. Is already talking about trying to get back. And there's reports that Lewis is already being pursued by names like Duke, 
Memphis. Um, Everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So that might be a tougher sell. And then there's, of course, the three-man recruiting class that Alabama kind of already has uh, commits from, although that could change as well. Um, And then we know that uh, Trinan Watford, last night on Twitter, actually reinforced that Alabama is still in his top five. So I'm sure uh, Coach Oates, if he hasn't already, is going to be reaching out to him as well. So I think, you know, job number one is Kyra Lewis. I mean, you it's just so important uh, to this team. He was so important this year as a a true freshman, as a 17-year-old, you know, someone – joked that even if Kyra Lewis has to sit out a year, he's basically just going back into the grade that he really should be in. But you really don't want to lose Kyra Lewis if you're Alabama, especially like his style of play. He's like an athletic point guard, likes to run, likes to play in transition. You would think that that's like a, a uh, an attractive... Uh, it, it would be attractive to play in this kind of system that runs up and down the court. But um, Matt, as you assess uh, Nate Oates's uh, immediate needs on the roster. What what kind of sticks out to you? Yeah, what's kind of good down the list. We're going to revisit what we said before. Right? There was different categories. I, I kind of think about it as really five different categories. One is guys who were eligible on Alabama team last year, eligible to come back, but are also eligible to transfer anywhere they want without sitting out. Um, two of those guys have already entered the transfer portal. Dazon Younger and Daniel Giddens. You just mentioned them. I would assume they are not coming back. They, there's no right. reason they, they could they could go somewhere else and not sit out. They could come back to Alabama and not sit out. I just I'm assuming. Uh, I think Dazon Ingram was was planning to leave regardless of the coaching change. Probably Giddens too. Um, I, I I'm assuming that they're gone and not coming not coming back. Um, Tevin Mack certainly I would keep a very close eye on him. Again, he could go anywhere he wants without sitting out, but the same time like he also would come back with Alabama and um you know especially if Petty does leave we're gonna get to him in a second if he does leave that's potentially a big opening for Mac to play a bigger role Mac speaking of the guy a coach that likes three-point shooters right. you know like you could see Mac being talked into coming back um we'll see how that goes but that's that's a guy I would assume Mac is 50-50 and at best but, but let's just say it's 50-50. And then Ingram and Giddens, I'm going to assume, are gone. So that's, that's one potential fifth-year senior Alabama could have coming back. I put that in the first category. It's either zero or one. Then there's the next category, which are five guys that played for Alabama this year are uh, underclassmen and would have, theoretically, unless they get a waiver, would have to sit out if they wanted to transfer. Um, those would be in order of importance, I'm going to say. Uh, would be Kyra Lewis, John Petty, Herb Jones, let's say, Alex Reese, and Galen Smith. Um, of those, we already mentioned, everybody knows, Kyra Lewis, the two most, the two guys you'd least want to lose, especially the number one you'd, most, you'd least want to lose, Kyra Lewis, both into the transfer portal. That means other schools have the green light to reach out to them to start recruiting them. They are doing that in spades. Not good, but Alabama has two things working for it to try and keep these guys home. Uh, and in the word home, well, maybe three things, actually. The, the word home is one of those. <laughs> those guys are both from the state of Alabama, so you know that's a big draw, you would think. Uh, two is that theoretically, without a waiver, and who knows these days, they might, maybe they could get a waiver, but without a waiver, they'd have to sit out somewhere. That's a, that's a big penalty. Uh, and, and something that Alabama's going to have – 
big advantage of because they're the one school that can say, you can play next year for us. And the third thing, and Mark, you mentioned this, uh, is just the style of play, especially for Kyra Lewis, a guy with Kyra, like Kyra Lewis's skill set who's really great at being fast, getting the ball off the court quickly, is perfect for this high-tempo transition offense. For Petty, an offense that loves to give guys spot-up three-pointers, are you kidding me? Perfect. Caleb Taylor-made for him. So so there's some things going here, but, you know, at the same time, when these guys are in the transfer portal, they're being actively recruited by other schools. That's got to be exciting, especially for Kyra Lewis, some of the caliber of schools that are coming after him. Duke, I mean, come on. Like, so I, I... this is probably wishful thinking for me. I'm going to say that each of those guys is 60-40 to come back. I may regret that. We could easily lose both of them. Um, maybe we should just say they're each 50-50. Uh, but because of those three things going for Alabama in each of those, both of those cases, I'm hoping they will. You could also, though, even though the other, other three guys, Alex Reese, Herb Jones, Galen Smith, have not been in the transfer portal, they certainly could. And Galen, uh, and, and uh, uh Herb Jones was someone that Oates called out uh, by name in the press. The only two players that he yeah. named as talking to, kind of quote-unquote right. recruiting, were Kyra Lewis and Herb Jones. So Actually that, didn't mention John Petty, I don't believe. So that's... He, di- he didn't, but yeah, that, yeah. I don't know if we should read into that or not. He probably just also doesn't know the names of all right, the players Right, that's true yet. too, yeah. And, uh, but also kind of indicates Herb Jones is at least communicated that he's thinking about going in the transfer portal. Who knows? Um, so... Of those five, I mean, look, hopefully Alabama gets at least four of the five back one way or the other. Um, and and by all means, if one of those guys could be Kyra Lewis, because Alabama is going to be in a really bad spot with no point guards right. whatsoever. None in the pipeline, no backups, nothing. I don't know. Alabama has to just go try to find some kind of grad transfer or something. I, it would be a – oh, man, it would be, be a bad spot. Not to mention the potential he has to become a all-SEC player – when he's actually 18, 19 years right. old, you know, so, so that, that I do think also among that group, uh, Alex Reese has a lot to, to gain from the system as well. You talk about yeah. like a stretch four who can take some kick out threes and Alex I think Reese is going to love this. I think Alex Reese is the most likely of that group to stay. And I was worried about, about him. He's one of the ones I was most worried about leaving right before the coaching change, after the coaching change, I, I gotta think he's the least likely to leave. He was kind of he got he got a little bit marginalized at, yeah. at points last year, and then he had he actually had a big game against in the, in the NIT. Um, yeah. But he's a guy who I think could thrive in the system as well. Um, but below these five guys, there's two kind of upcoming redshirt freshmen: Jevian right. Davis Fleming and Deontay Wood, who sat out this year. I mean, the more bodies, the better at this point. I think yeah, you gotta keep. I didn't know anything about them. Um, you know. Who knows? Yeah, they they they're total wild cards. They'd have to sit out another year if they transfer. So they you know they could, they could be really anxious to play because they just sat out last year as red shirts. Um, so yeah, so to kind of again, I'd say is to recap the categories is sort of one zero or one of the fifth year seniors. That's either Tevin Max stays or goes. That's the question there. Of the five returning players from last year's rotation, again, at least two are big risks of going. Maybe a third could go who knows any of them could go all of them could go uh we're maybe being wishful but hoping four of those come back and especially hoping that one of those at least is Kyra lewis um but yeah that could be anywhere from who knows how many of those guys come back um but the number i'll say this the number of those five guys that come back especially if Kyra, whether or not Kyra lewis is one of them will be the determining factor of whether this is going to be a slow rebuild 
like similar to what Nate Oates took his first, you know, two years at Buffalo to do, or if, if he can hit the ground running and actually have a competitive team from year one, that's, that's, that is the question. And I don't know the answer. I, I don't know how soon we're going to know the answer, but that's, that's the thing that's going to keep me up at night as an Alabama fan uh, is, is can Alabama retain those guys? Cause that, that core could be really good. And that's something that you could build, build around the two, the next category, there's two, the two red shirts, this past season again i know nothing i haven't heard anything about them uh who knows they could go anyway but at the very least like mark said you probably just want bodies at this point so i'd imagine you'd want them back if you're nate oats there are three signees haven't heard much from them they're going to be hard to hold on to it's very easy to get released from your letter of intent when there's a coaching change if any of these guys don't like the new coaching staff or just want to go elsewhere they can pretty much do so and get out of their letter of intent um we already mentioned there's juan gary uh, an athletic small forward out of South Carolina, Jalen Forbes, a sharp shooting guard from Mississippi, and Jaden Shackelford, uh, th- another good three-point shooter, uh, shooting guard out of California. Love to keep those guys, especially Forbes and Shackelford, have to love this offense. Again, three-point shooters, so we're hoping they can stay. Jalen Forbes has already said some pretty positive things, I think I read. Hopefully Shackelford stays. Gary might be the one with the best reason to get out of his letter of intent because he's less of a three-point shooter, more of like an athletic guy. Um, he might not be the best fit, even though he's very highly recruited, very highly rated, top 100 player nationally. So we'll see. And then, and then two targets to mention that we know about that are high school players who have not committed at all. Trendon Wofford, everybody knows about him. I think that's like a one in 10 shot. I mean, Alabama was already an underdog to land him before the coaching change. You just... It's almost unheard of for a five-star player to commit or sign with a brand new coach who's literally going to be two weeks out of the job. I think it's, I won't say it's impossible. I mean, he he does have connections with Alabama staff, especially if like assistants like Petway that have known him for a long time get kept on the staff, or there's rumors about his high school coach. Who knows? That's why I'm leaving it as a one in ten chance, but yeah. I wouldn't count on it. But it's worth worth watching. And, and then one other target that just came on the radar was a guy that uh, Nate Oates has been recruiting heavily to Buffalo, uh, a 6'9 player, Raymond Hawkins out of California, um, who's got an offer is actually from Bobby Hurley, there's a name again coming up, uh, at Arizona State, got an offer from Arkansas, supposedly. So, you know, uh, got some high major programs that want him. Apparently, he's got a good relationship with Nate Oates. That's a guy, realistically, that Alabama might be able to sign now that Oates is at Alabama. Um, if he was interested in coming to Buffalo to play for Oates, surely he'd be willing to come to Alabama, you'd think. So that's a, that's a big one to watch out for. So two two targets that we know about. I'm sure there'll be more. Um, there just aren't many high school players left, unfortunately, uncommitted. So maybe, maybe JUCO guys, maybe grad transfers. But it really kind of all comes back to that core group of five guys. How many of those can Alabama hold on to? If Alabama can hold on to most of them, or at least, at least Kyra Lewis, then I think Alabama has a chance to be good next year. Keep an eye on Tevin Mack, and then um, uh, keep your fingers crossed and hope for the best. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Coach Oates has his work cut out for him coming here to Tuscaloosa. Um, we'll certainly be keeping up with that. You can uh, keep up with us on Twitter at BamaXBats, as always. Um, we will probably be back in a couple of weeks, hopefully before A-Day, to kind of talk some spring football and uh, uh, what to look for in that game. But Otherwise, uh, certainly been an eventful uh, last few days in the basketball world, and we appreciate everybody following along, both here and on Twitter. 
Uh, that does it for this episode. Um, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you real soon.